Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. Just earlier this month, it was the 80th anniversary of the first Arctic convoy. First convoy that left British ports, headed up over the top of Norway into the Arctic to keep the Soviet war effort supplied as their armies fell back, reeling before the German onslaught in the summer and autumn of 1941. This was Winston Churchill's response to Soviet pleas for assistance. Stalin had a pretty extensive shopping list when Churchill approached him after Operation Barbarossa began. Stalin hoped the British might be able to open a second front, that the British would be able to send troops to the Soviet Union or mountains of supplies. Well, this was Churchill's first offer, this convoy carrying vital war material to help the Soviet war engine rebuild itself and eventually drive back the Germans. The Arctic convoys were described by Winston Churchill as the worst journey on earth. Dark, freezing cold, terrible weather, in near constant range of German submarines and aircraft based in Norwegian bases and ports. And in the winter months, that journey had to be completed in almost total darkness. It could be terrifying and thankless. For the anniversary of the Arctic Convoys, we've got a documentary going out on historyhit.tv. It's our digital history channel. It's like Netflix, but just for history documentaries. No messing around with other stuff. Who wants to watch other stuff? Someone came up to me on the street the other day and they said how much they love watching History Hit TV, but their partner was less happy because their partner was not a history fan. I said, your partner will be after a few more months of exposure, of brainwashing. They will join the revolution as well. Anyway, if you're a history fan, you need to get to historyhit.tv. You can watch the Arctic Convoys documentary. You can watch any of the other hundreds of documentaries we've got on there, stretching all the way back to the Stone Age. So you're going to love that. But before you do that, you can listen to this podcast because this is our special anniversary podcast on the Arctic Convoys. We're talking to one of my favourite naval historians, it's Nick Hewitt. He's head of research and collections at the National Museum of the Royal Navy. He has worked alongside me as a TV presenter back in 2016 on the programme about the Battle of Jutland. He was a brilliant contributor to the History Hit recent documentary about sinking the Bismarck. He was absolutely fantastic at that. 
And he's perhaps most well-known at the moment for being the lead, the person who made LCT-7074, the landing craft tank 7074, D-Day veteran, rescued from being a wreck to now being one of the finest restored ships in Britain's national collection. So well done, Nick Hewitt, for that, as well as his many, many other achievements. So you'll hear from Nick Hewitt coming up. Please go over to historyhit.tv, check out the documentary. And before you do, here's the Arctic Convoys. Nick, good to be with you in my HQ in the study. Yeah, it's remarkable. I've never seen so many books. It's fantastic. Thanks. Well, it's certainly good to have you in here. I've talked to you enough while sitting in here and we're just having a beer. I've just broken a chair. So uh, things are off to a great start. Yeah, I didn't expect that. That was an unusual beginning. <laughs> I was like surprised. Speaking of things that were unexpected, Churchill and Stalin's new sudden friendship, both of them made careers basically berating the capitalist West or Stalin, respectively, or the Bolshevik Revolution and Leninist Stalinism, respectively. It was quite a sudden, as soon as Hitler invaded, I've been to the National Archives, I've seen the correspondence, they strike up a conversation. Yeah, so this is very much a marriage of convenience. There is no love lost, clearly. As you say, they've been on opposite sides of the political spectrum for decades. But Churchill famously goes into Parliament. He's questioned on it, uh, paraphrasing now, but basically says if Hitler invaded hell, then I would think very favourably about the devil himself. Britain and the British Empire are holding off the Germans on their own. The Russians are not an ideal ally, but it is an ally. And clearly they have to make some common ground, and the common ground is fighting Germans. It's fascinating because we think, well, yes, the Brits sent supplies. Stalin, he wanted troops. Yeah, right from the beginning, the Russians want a second front. The general pattern for the Arctic convoys is they always want more than the Western allies are able to provide. He wants troops. He wants a second front very, very rapidly. He wants British troops in Russia. It's, you know, phenomenal and completely unachievable, obviously. But if you don't ask, you don't get, right? And what's going on, on the British side? Because obviously Britain's trying to stockpile its own supplies, keep its own industries and arsenals full and operating. Does Churchill face arguments within his war machine about what to give to the Soviets? Yeah, I mean, there's a real tension there because obviously Britain's fighting an active campaign in North Africa. They're trying to build up reserves in the UK, both to defend the UK, because in 1941, there's still a genuine concern that the Germans might invade. We know all with hindsight now that the Germans didn't have the capability to do that and Russia at the same time, but they didn't know that then, not really. And then, of course, you've got the increased tension around you know, you've got American aid coming in to Britain they're very reluctant to see that siphoned off and sent to the Russians. And that gets worse, actually, as the supply system starts to develop and they do start to send things. The absolute worst thing that the British see is desperately needed war supplies piling up on the dock in Mamansk because the Russian internal communication system is so shambolic they can't get the stuff to the front line for a while. But the decision is made. Churchill sort of wins an internal battle. And it's August 1941, so it's pretty rapidly after the German invasion. It's very rapidly, and it's extraordinary that they managed to do that because, of course, the other thing that's in short supply is maritime transport capacity. So, you know, every hull that's being used to go to Russia is a hull that's not going across the Atlantic. We must remember, of course, that the Arctic convoys are not the only route. So you have a, essentially a land route that goes up through Iran and into the southern end of the Soviet Union. A lot of material, and as the war progresses even more, a huge amount goes through that route. And you also have a kind of air bridge through Siberia from the US once the US is in the war, material going that way as well. But the Arctic convoys are really important, partly because it's the most immediate route. It's the quickest way to get stuff there. But also it's a very visual signal of support to the Russians. And that's important signal to send to the Russians, but it's also an important signal to send to people in the UK because there's a strong Labour movement in Britain. You know, there's a lot of sympathy 
amongst working class people in Britain for the Soviet Union when it is invaded. There are calls for aid to Russia right from the second that Germans invade. And it's a very visual symbol that we're taking risks to support Russia, if that makes sense. Initially, was it primarily symbolic, do you think? Those first few convoys, were they important? I think there's an interesting question around that. I think there is a lot of symbolism always in the Arctic convoys. Interestingly, though, if you look back to the Cold War, we kind of went too far the other way. And I think there was a conclusion that it was all symbolic and it didn't really matter. And it was Russian T-34s that won the war. The truth is somewhere in the middle. There's a lot of symbolism, I think, in sending tanks and aircraft, the fighting tools of war, if you like. Frankly, the tanks the British are churning out in 1941-42 are not as good as the stuff the Russians are building themselves. You're sending Matildas and Valentines. But where it gets really important is in the stuff that is just, frankly, not glamorous. So the one I always like to cite, and I can't remember the number in my head now, but the thousands and thousands of miles of telephone wire, American trucks, railway engines. There's a whole mass of stuff that goes out there that doesn't get filmed in the propaganda films. And on that, the Russians are absolutely dependent. The fact that they're getting this stuff from the West means they can focus on building T-34s and churning out rifles. What about the journey itself? Talk to me about the hazards of sailing on what I think Churchill called the worst journey on Earth. Yeah, the worst journey in the world. It is a really difficult route. Clearly, the environmental conditions up there are appalling. It's freezing cold, terrible gales, all that kind of stuff. You only last a few minutes if you go in the water. But the kind of strategic coastline issue is a real problem there. The Germans are obviously sitting in Norway. And in the winter months, when the convoys are pushed south by the ice sheet, they are so close to the Norwegian coast. They're within easy striking range of German aircraft. They're exposed to a wider range of threats probably than maybe anywhere else except possibly the Mediterranean. So they're exposed to surface ships, they're exposed to air attack, they're exposed to U-boats, they're exposed to almost everything, and they're being funneled through this very, very narrow gap between the ice and the northern tip of Norway. Now, the advantage they've got in the winter is you've got almost total darkness for the winter months, so that's good. You get the summer, and the ice pack moves, so you've got a bit more manoeuvring room, but in the summer you've got almost total daylight, which makes life very, very easy for the Luftwaffe. Nobody is particularly good in the Second World War at hitting ships at night. Nobody's air force is that great at it. So the Luftwaffe become a much more potent threat in the summer. So you add all that together, there's no way they can vary their route. It's pretty obvious where they're going, and the environmental conditions are appalling. And what you end up with then is each Russian convoy almost becomes a fleet action. They have very, very substantial parts of the home fleet supporting every single Arctic convoy because it's the only way to get them through. Staying on the environmental stuff, the images we have of the Arctic convoys is people chipping massive icicles off. I mean, the seawater freezing as soon as it touches the steel on the deck. You've met those veterans, you've read their accounts. Was it the worst journey? We need to be careful with that. I met at least one veteran who described service on the east coast of the UK in the winter of 39-40 as the worst winter he'd ever known because it was a terrible, terrible winter. But the kind of relentlessness of the Arctic run, the dreadful conditions that they had at the other end, the spray would break over the forecastle and it would immediately freeze. So there were things they had to do there that they didn't do anywhere else, periodically traversing the turrets to make sure they weren't iced up, chipping ice, going out there with steam hoses to blast it off the deck. They're dressed up like mummies. They're so wrapped up in today. We're all familiar now with wonderful kind of equipment for living and working in those kind of conditions. They had a duffel coat a duffel coat and some oil skins, so they're really not prepared for it. And they are fur mittens supplied by the civilian population of the UK. The equipment's not good, the conditions are awful, and it's constant. So yeah, really, really grim, and not much relief when they get to the other end either. Are the crews 
assigned to the Arctic Convoys. They don't go, right, you're on doing Arctic Convoy, this one, and then you're going down to Med for something. I mean, once you're in for one, do you tend to do several? They tended to do tours up there, but they did rotate ships through. So the Arctic Convoys are a home fleet operation, fundamentally, and that's where the difference is. So the Atlantic Western Approaches Command runs that. Western Approaches Command doesn't really have major surface ships. It's mostly escorts. The home fleet runs the Arctic convoys. Most convoys, and I am generalising here, you have three distinct groups of warships associated with them. You have the close escort, which is your classic convoy escort of corvettes and older destroyers huddled around the merchant ships protecting them. But then they'd usually have a screen of cruisers, so maybe two or three cruisers from the home fleet operating just off the convoy to protect them against any serious German heavy ships that come out. And also there'd be a battleship task group from the home fleet that would also come out as a distant cover, usually as far as Bear Island. So they're a huge and very complex operation. And then you've got the same thing going the other way when they bring the convoys back, of mostly empty ships, but very valuable hulls, obviously. Listen to Dan Snow's history. It's the 80th anniversary of the start of the Arctic convoys. More after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I guess one of the reasons that you've got the capital ships is you've got good old Tirpitz, most powerful German battleship remaining, sitting in a fjord in Norway, arguably poised to come out. The lone queen of the north. And again, I think hindsight is a really treacherous thing when we look at Tirpitz. We look back now and we, we understand the orders that the German Navy were operating under to not seek major action. And we understand the fear that Hitler had for deploying battleships. And we look back now and think that she wasn't going to come out and fight a surface action. But again, they did not know that at the time. We know the Bismarck action was a success. The British are haunted by how close they came to losing Bismarck and what it cost them to catch her. And they're aware of the extraordinary amount of luck they had in taking down Bismarck. So there is a huge amount of concern about what would happen if Tirpitz came out. And also, she hasn't got to get out into the Atlantic to find an Arctic convoy. She hasn't got very far to go. And the results would have been absolutely devastating. So yeah, usually one battleship somewhere near the convoy until... They get past Bear Island, and at that point, the waters are just too risky. They're out of friendly air cover range, and also usually a home fleet aircraft carrier. Ironically, what we know now is that's what really frightened the Germans because of the Bismarck experience. So both sides' strategies in the Arctic are shaped by that battle with the Bismarck. There were some of the most significant Anglo-German clashes of these years were in the Arctic, though, weren't they? I mean, whether it's... Um... PQ-17 or Barents Strait. I mean, the convoys did often precipitate quite significant action. Yeah, absolutely. You've got 
PQ17, I mean, you could do a whole podcast on. It's an extraordinary story, absolutely incredible, and really, really reveals what a threat Tirpitz was because the whole disaster starts with a piece of what turned out to be duff intelligence that Tirpitz is out. So We should say PQ-17 was the code name of a convoy, so it's heading off to northern Russia. Yeah, so the first convoy to Russia is called Dervish, codenamed Dervish, and then they start to run into a cycle where they are PQ out to Russia and then QP are the convoys back. And then after PQ-17, they run PQ-18, but obviously the code name has a bit of a bad press by that point, so they then change them to JWs and RAs. So those are the code names for the convoys. And yeah, you get a significant action around that. You get another less well-known action really around PQ-18, which also has devastating losses. It just more of it gets fought through, but it's hit very, very hard by the German Air Force. Um, you have the Battle of the Barents Sea, which is a full-on engagement between the German heavy cruiser Hipper and one of the pocket battleships against a British screening force of cruisers. So that's a proper naval battle that nobody ever really knows about. And you get the Battle of the North Cape in Boxing Day 43 when the Scharnhorst is sunk. So plenty of serious surface action up there. And I want to come back to all those, but North Cape, is that really sort of the death knell of German surface activity? Yeah, very much so. It's really interesting, North Cape. It's the last big gun naval battle fought in European waters ever in history. And interestingly, it is fought without the aid of submarines, without the aid of aircraft. It's a straight-up fight between, essentially, three British cruisers and the battleship Duke of York and the Scharnhorst. And the Scharnhorst is sunk, goes down with her colours flying, and all guns blazing, and that's the end of it then. That's the end of German surface threat, really. Because Hitler, furious, orders them all basically stay at home after that. Well, no, he does that after Barents Sea. So interestingly, after Barents Sea, because Barents Sea is an inconclusive action, and essentially the Germans are driven off by three British cruisers, which probably they should have given a better account of themselves against. At that point, Hitler has a rage about the surface fleet. He orders the entire surface fleet, all the major capital ships broken up and their guns recycled into coastal batteries. Admiral Raider resigns. Admiral Dönitz takes over. Dönitz is obviously a submarine man, but he's not stupid. And the single most potent threat to a convoy is the combination between submarines and a surface ship. So although they retire some of the obsolete units and they go to the Baltic and become training units, he does keep a nucleus of capital ships and they're all in Norway. But after North Cape, Tirpitz has been basically immobilised by a succession of attacks from miniature submarines and aircraft. Scharnhorst is now sunk. Hipper's mechanically unreliable and lives in the Baltic, along with Prinz Eugen. So they just haven't got the ships to threaten, really, because by that point in the war, the prospect of bringing a ship out of the Baltic and up north is very, very difficult for them. And so talk to me again about PQ-17 and why it shows what the rest that German, even a rumour of German activity provoked, but also the risk that all those convoys face if they broke up and scattered. I tend to go out on a limb a bit with PQ-17. I don't think, given the information they had, I don't think there's much else they could have done. So PQ-17 is a normal Arctic convoy. It's making its way across to Russia. It has that mixed escort that I described. So there's old destroyers and corvettes and a couple of laughingly anti-aircraft cruisers. They're actually banana boats with anti-aircraft guns on them. You know, a real mixed mismatch. And then there's three cruisers in close cover and they are attacked initially by the german air force and they give a very good account of themselves the escort is perfect for doing that they drive off these german aircraft they shoot a couple down morale is high you know this is fourth of july ironically as you know the american ships in company celebrate fourth of july as the convoy is passing through but then this information reaches london that the Tirpitz is sortying and actually what they initially hear is that the Tirpitz is sorting with a powerful battle group, actually, with the Admiral Scheer, or it might be Lutzel, one of the pocket battleships anyway, and one of the heavy cruisers. So it's a very powerful battle group. 
And the Germans are actually planning this. This is what we tend to forget. The Germans are planning a sortie. They do actually start a sortie, but they lose one ship to a mine and then they lose another one that runs aground and Tirpitz goes out so far and they turn around and go back again. The perils we learn from this, though, is trying to second-guess commanders at sea from London. So the decision is basically made at the Admiralty that the convoy should be scattered, which is an entirely appropriate response if you have got a capital ship coming in, because a capital ship would overwhelm those fairly flimsy close escorts and then devastate the convoy. So you have to make it harder to find because nothing that's a close escort to the convoy is going to stand up to turpits. So they order the destroyers of the escort to form up with the cruiser close escort and go and fight what would have been a pretty forlorn action against Tirpitz, and the merchant ships scatter. Unfortunately, of course, Tirpitz isn't at sea. She's gone back. There is no threat from heavy units. And what you've now got is a lot of scattered individual merchant ships in that still fairly narrow belt of water, and they are picked off by German submarines and aircraft individually. There are some phenomenal acts of heroism and initiative. There's the story of the trawler that took three merchant ships into the ice pack and hid, essentially. Incredible stuff. They found one of the merchant ships with them was carrying a cargo of whitewash, so they pulled out the whitewash, they painted the ships white and hid in the ice pack for a couple of days. Others made their way singly to Novaya Zemlya and they kind of formed up there. And so a few of them did get to Russia, but the losses were appalling and it was a huge, huge disaster and a humiliation. And also the Russians lose faith at this point. The Russians are always very unforgiving. There's never any kind of sense of feeling bad for the losses and the dead sailors. Maybe we can forgive them for that, to be completely brutal about it. We're talking about a few hundred merchant mariners when the Russians are losing thousands and thousands every day on the Eastern Front. So Stalin's immediate response is, well, when are you going to send me more stuff because you've lost all my stuff? It's a very, very difficult occasion. It has a significant impact on the relationship between the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy because the Merchant Sailors' perspective is the Royal Navy ran away and left them. And it also does impact on Anglo-American relations because quite a few of the ships in convoy are American and, and, you know, they're fairly significant casualties. So it's a complete disaster. In terms of its overall strategic impact on the war, though, really very, very limited, I would say. Speaking of that, we haven't mentioned the Merchant Navy. So the Navy ships are escorting fleets of civilian crewed pre-war transport vessels. No armour plating, no, well, no proper armament, really. By that point in the war, they're not all pre-war, so you're getting the Liberty ships are starting to come through. But yeah, they're just freighters. They are limited by international law about what they can actually have in terms of armament. So most of them have got a couple of anti-aircraft guns and an elderly gun on the back end because it can only be defensive armament if it's on the rear of the ship aft. If you're running away, you can shoot, but you can't have one up forward. So very weird stuff. And the older ships tend not to be pushed up there. The older ships tend to be on the Atlantic and the... UK coastal convoy routes, but there's a right mix and they are crewed essentially by civilians. Again, we look back now and there's been rightly a big move to recognise the Merchant Navy as the fourth service and all that kind of thing. That was very late in coming in the Second World War. For an awfully long time, they were civilians working for companies and their terms and conditions and pay varied wildly depending on what company they worked for. And many authors have written about the most shameful thing for quite a long part of the war is, you know, if they were torpedoed and went in a lifeboat, their pay stopped. They weren't being paid until they then got another ship. So very difficult conditions for them. Equally, the Royal Navy sailors used to be jealous because when they were being paid, they were paid significantly more than an RN sailor. But yeah, very difficult, vulnerable. And again, always that 
issue that if they went in the water in the Arctic, they really wouldn't last very long. I heard a story, it may not be true, but actually almost preferred the winter because he's going to die straight away when you went into the water. In the summer, you might last a minute or two. It's yeah. a bit grim. I can well believe that. There's all sorts of stories around what's the best way to go. And some of them would say they actually preferred it to be, you know, in a tanker that just went up wump and that was it. You wouldn't feel anything. There's no good way fundamentally to die at sea. I guess the really strange thing about the Arctic is the weather conditions and the environmental conditions, which are universally appalling. As far as the kind of enemy action, for every merchant sailor who's been torpedoed, you can find another three who never saw a German because it's the luck of the draw whether yours is the convoy that gets attacked or not. But those conditions in the winter especially are pretty much unreplicated. Although you talk to a sailor on an Atlantic convoy where the entire upper works of the ship have been stripped off by a wave, everyone has their own story, I think I would say. It's just a reminder, and you've been such a champion of this in the museum and media, of for all that we talk about Stalingrad and we talk about D-Day and we talk about Battle of Bulge, the maritime environment is so important here. It is. I mean, I've written about this. Control of the seas is why the Western allies are able to win their bit of the war. I fully accept the what if about could the Soviet Union have won with or without Western aid. I don't know the answer to that question. That was a land war to all intents and purposes. But the war that the Western allies fight from the fall of France in the spring of 1940 until D-Day is an amphibious war that uses the sea for supply, for moving armies around. You can move your armies around and fight where the other guy is weak. And that's what they're doing in the Mediterranean. And this is what they're able to do. This is what sea power buys you. It's so vital. But equally, I find that we forget the stories of sailors. They're just not there. They're anonymous in so many general histories, if you like, of how the war is fought. You don't find sailors. And I think some of that is the global scale is quite hard for people to comprehend. And also it's the maritime dimension that knits those theatres of war together and makes it a world war. You know, if you want to understand why an operation in Asia Pacific isn't possible, it's because the shipping that's required to do it is being used in the Mediterranean or whatever, pick your example. So it's hugely important. The war doesn't work for the Western Allies without sea power. The Arctic convoys go through right to the end of the war. Yeah, in fact, weirdly, the last Arctic convoys are run after the war ends. It's supplies that they've already agreed to give to the Russians and they've been planned and delivered. So I think there's at least one that goes through after the end of the war. And it does remain dangerous till the end. U-boats are still operating out of Norway right up to the end of the war. Norway is obviously not liberated until Germany surrenders. So there are still threats. The Luftwaffe is pretty much a spent force because they haven't got any fuel, but the U-boats are still active. And then they, you know, they run a convoy coming back, dismantling base infrastructure and bringing back UK and US nationals from Russia. So Nick, obviously the debate rages, but what do you think is the real significance of this artery of supplies to the Soviet Union during the Second World War? So I'm going to stick my neck out here and I'm going to say, although there is a material importance to what this delivered, I think the significance is symbolic. But equally, I think we are overly dismissive of the importance of symbolism in a fragile alliance war. And actually, that strong statement to the Russians, not just that we were giving them stuff, but that people were risking their lives and dying to give them stuff, was a really important gesture to make. But also, there's another dimension that I think other historians have argued, but it doesn't get played up as much as I think it should be, which is later in the war, when sea control is a little bit more assured, there's no doubt that the Royal Navy are using this as an opportunity to bring the Germans out. And they see it as an opportunity later in the war when the Russians are less dependent on those supplies. The advantage of pulling out German surface ships so you can sink them 
and giving them a target to encourage them to come out is clear. And actually, North Cape is a perfect example of that. The convoy is used, in effect, as bait to polish off one of the last German surface units. So the Arctic convoys are hugely important in a fragile alliance. Delivering what your ally wants you to do is really important. And we shouldn't really get hung up on Matilda tanks piled up on the dockside in Murmansk or any of those things. It's the demonstration of support is vital. Otherwise, alliances fall apart. Nick, thank you very much. You've got a book coming out soon, so you'll come back on and talk to us about that, I'm sure. Definitely will, yeah. Battle of the Same Bay. D-Day is a naval battle. D-Day is a naval battle. Here we go. Brilliant. Thanks, man. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial for that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give it a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.